So we are about halfway through the ministry of Jesus chronologically in this message that we will be in tonight. And it, it's interesting how the, the teaching responsibilities fall. I, I definitely got one of the least controversial passages um, that we've gone through so far, and I'm excited to possibly scratch the surface. <laughs> so th- this is going to be a really fun discussion, and I've realized through studying on the transfiguration that there is a lot of Old Testament allusion to its historical event that brings a little more light to it than we might have have thought of in the past. I know this is a this is a section of the New Testament that I read through and I never really spent time understanding. I just kind of said, wow, that's really interesting, but I have no idea why that is there. And I'm just going to move to the next part of the narrative where they get back into the <laughs> the, 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 the Christ interacting with, you know, the average, you know, human circumstance, because it kind of does seem to come out of nowhere. But it really is interesting how, you know, every commentator agrees that it's pretty much right smack dab in the middle of Christ's ministry. It, it seems like his ministry is marked by uh, a beginning, middle, and end. This is the middle. The beginning would be the inauguration of Christ's ministry and his baptism by John the Baptist that he had to, in a sense, command John, no, dude, you're doing this. You're going to baptize me. As much as you don't want to do it, this is part of what, what has to be done to fulfill all righteousness. And then the final part of his ministry, you know, arguably um, before he descends into Hades and rises from the dead is his crucifixion and death. And so we are right here in the middle. And since we are going through an overview kind of the bird's eye view of the, the meta narrative or the grand story of scripture, uh, the redemptive story in scripture. We're just hitting on key passages in the Bible and we're in the New Testament right now. And so we'll actually get to the end of this story a lot quicker than if we were going through a book of the Bible or a gospel chronologically. So um, there's just a thought I, I want us to have in the back of our minds. It's, it's, you know, one of the primary applications will bring light of at the end of this, but have you ever saw or have you ever seen a movie where the primary character gets some sort of revelation or epiphany or dream that no one else has witnessed to, but it gives them such strong conviction that they continue to press through the difficult times, even at times they're almost ready to give up hope. They continue to move through because of that event that in a sense prepared them for the road ahead. Um, I was talking to Chris about this earlier, the movie that, that kept coming to my mind, and it's a little bit older, so some of you guys might be able to connect with it, the movie Field of Dreams. Um, there was a, a vision, a, a revelation, a connection with a, in a sense, an angelic form of a, of a historical baseball player that Kevin Costner, I'm forgetting his actor name in that movie right now, but he um, interacts with this gentleman a few times, and he um, starts telling his wife in bed, one evening, they have this really deep conversation when I believe they're struggling financially to keep their, their farm and their lifestyle going. And uh, he says, I feel like there's something so much more that I have to live for. There, there's something I just have not accomplished that I'm supposed to do. And he was really the only one that understood it because no, this guy was not coming to anyone else except him. So let's keep that in the back of our mind that that interaction was not in vain. It was actually for a purpose and it would actually get him through the hard times of doubt and trial before he was able to um, see the end in its fruition. So again, we, 
I will try to remember to come back to that later, but just keep that in your mind. And that, that is one of the things that was really standing out to me as I, as I was reading and studying and digging into this passage. So the transfiguration was not a public experience. It was a very small group of people. This was a conversation that we get a window into in the scriptures, but it's not a conversation that many people knew. There were stories of it later, but you know, we'll explicitly see that Jesus told the disciples that were there, the inner circle, James, Peter, and John, to not say anything about it until he had risen from the dead. It was something that was for those primary disciples. It was not for anyone else. It was for that audience. And we'll, we'll try to unpack why they might have needed this experience. Um, this passage comes on the heels of Jesus' first passion prediction. If you go back through the chronology, um, it's not far behind. I believe it's in chapter 8, so we'll be in chapter 9 of Mark. Um, his, Jesus' first passion prediction, remember he has three passion predictions in the Gospels that are recorded. Um, Secondly, it's right on the heels of his teaching on the cost of discipleship to his disciples, the difficulty, the difficult road of discipleship and being a follower of him. And thirdly, no doubt the disciples, after these teachings, before the transfiguration even came on the scene, they were full of confusion, doubt, and discouragement at this point. Can you imagine? I mean, Remember Peter's response? You know, what are you talking about at this rising from the dead thing? He had no clue what was going on. And this was a common response that Peter and some other disciples had when Jesus had brought up the fact that he was actually going to die and be buried and rise again. Um, and then when he talked about his teaching on the cost of discipleship and the difficulty of it, I, I mean, honestly, if I were in their shoes, I absolutely would have been full of confusion, doubt, and discouragement at this point. So, Interestingly, this is when the transfiguration, it says six days later in Mark, the transfiguration happened after this moment. So just a tiny bit of background besides what I just mentioned. Um, Passages in the New Testament that focus on eschatology or the study of last things are most often given for the purpose of strengthening and encouragement of the faithful who are either in the midst of trials or are in preparation of those trials that will come. Have you guys ever thought about that before? When you read the book of Peter, First and Second Peter, it becomes very clear the purpose of focusing on the end is not to make another religion or to make a sub-theological obsession. It's actually to get them through very difficult trials they're going through. A glimpse of the end helps us in the present, right? And that's God's design. This is not our our own wisdom that we've made up. This is something that God has done through um, his apostles and prophets. So the inner circle, James, Peter, and John, uh, to be part of the inner circle did not mean they were more favored with God. It meant, that it meant greater responsibility, a more unique, more high-demand calling on their life and a role they were to fulfill on this side of heaven. We do not want to seek these roles if we are not called to them. But if you are bound to them, it seems pretty impossible to get out of them, right? And whatever that looks like in your life, it doesn't necessarily have to be something this drastic, but there are certain callings that Christians in our age and throughout church history have experienced that led to much suffering, much rejection, much persecution. 
So I, I really want us to have that background on the forefront because, man, for my studies, again, this is stuff that I really have come to learn through this. I did not have any knowledge or position on this passage before the last week or so. And, and I, I really do believe that it, it will bring itself to light as we go through it. So this is a historical account. I'm going to read 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. And what great coming from the horse's mouth, one of the gentlemen that were in that secret private group that got to experience this. Uh, Peter says in 2 Peter 16, chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, he says, we ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic words strongly confirmed and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is Paul, Peter's reflection on that transfiguration account. It's, it's so great that it's recorded because it was not just a witness that had recorded a story about it or a, from a firsthand witness of the experience. Peter also records it to give us kind of a second anchor that this is something that wasn't just a dream. It actually did happen. It was something that these gentlemen, these, these men of God were eyewitnesses of. Because there's a little bit of challenge, of course, that this didn't happen, um, but it seems to be that, you know, God wanted us to understand through Peter's words in Second Peter that it did actually happen, and we have a couple witnesses in the New Testament to affirm it. So what one commentator said, in anticipation of the resurrection within the ministry of Jesus for the purpose of encouraging the disciples to believe and follow Jesus on the way to the cross. That, I believe, is the primary context to, to why um, Christ revealed himself uniquely to these, these men, the, these disciples, in this specific halfway point in the ministry when it was going to start to get really hard and really difficult as the um, Passion Week approached. So verse, chapter 9 and Mark, let's go to our text, starting in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. This change based on the original language is a metamorphic change. If any of you have ever studied um, the metamorphic process in a rock, you know that when that rock undergoes a change, it, it doesn't go back. It's permanently changed to that beautiful rock when it was a, um, say, a, 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 one of those porous lava stones. It goes to one of those beautiful rocks under excessive pressure. There is a process. Well, the unique thing about this is it's only Christ who can defy nature. He's the only one that can metamorphically change and then change back. That's why I want to say, this is what happened, but it's unique to Christ because he is actually going to go back into his incarnate form. But this is why this is such an amazing passage. Um, so this is not just a slight adjustment, but a complete transformation. This is the, this is the word that's used when we, are, the English translators translate it transfiguration. He was transfigured before them. It's, it's this word that comes from the word metamorphic or metamorphosis. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that word properly. Um, 
James Brooks, another commentator, said it like this. Jesus' appearance was temporarily changed from that of an ordinary human being to a divine being in all of his glory. And the way that Mark described it based on the eyewitness account of the one that described it to him was the fact that, um, you know, you can be the best housewife in the world and you can't launder. <laughs> you can't launder these white garments and, and bleach them, bleach the staining out of them as well as Jesus's garments look. So it was definitely a supernatural garment he was wearing as well. Um, I, I, love, I love how it's worded. It's not worded in the other gospels. This is recorded in the other synoptic gospels, not in John, but I believe this is the only one in Mark that describes um, how it's, his clothing was so extremely white, it became dazzling, white as no, no launder on earth could whiten them. <laughs> That's the best way you could describe it. I mean, what a, what a simplistic life. They weren't overrun by technology. They're these beautiful, simple examples that everyone in, in life, every person in, within Judaism that, and, and even the Greco-Roman world that would have been reading this, they could have connected with, they could have related to when they re- read this many years later. So, um, so a couple things that I believe that you know, we can get from this. Um, it's a glimpse of how these disciples would see Christ in eternity. This was a precursor or in a sense, a um, preview of what things would be like once all this difficulty, once all this trial, once the suffering of Christ, once their suffering would be done. He wanted them to understand that that was not in vain, that they would have not only myself as Christ, but they, the, the disciples would have a future state that would be far better than where they're at in the present and he knew what he was doing. He knew that they needed this encouragement, this very specific epiphany, so to speak, to prepare them for the next half of Christ's ministry and the ministries they would carry on after he went to be with the Father after his resurrection. So that's point one, a glimpse of how they would see Christ in eternity and, and ultimately what they and other believers would be like as well um, in, in their eternal state. Number two, the disciples needed fuller revelation of who Jesus was. Up to this point, I mean, Peter had just confessed that Jesus was the Christ, but by some of his language following that, he didn't really fully get it. And I actually have more compassion on, on Peter having dug into this further and realized no one really fully understood who Jesus was till he rose from the dead. And that's, in a sense, the language he used. You know, that's why I believe one of the reasons why this, this mark in secret, this secret of not telling people, because why have your followers explained to the crowds stuff that you don't fully understand? That makes no sense. The understanding would come later, but he gave it to them because at the fullness of time, when, when, when fuller revelation would come, they would put all the pieces together and understand exactly why these things had happened. And, and so this was something to... Um, basically give them four revelations saying, no, I'm not just whatever you think the Messiah is, this earthly ruler. Like I am actually the God of the universe. I am the creator of the universe that has come to give my life up as a ransom for many. And I want you to understand as you've seen me so steeped in humanity that yes, that is important to me, but my being is beyond humanity. And this more than likely completely revolutionized their perspective on Christ after this appearance. Because again, we see their experience of him as a very wise teacher and rabbi, but 
some of the connections of who he really was just weren't fully there yet. And so um, God in Christ graced the, this inner circle of men who would have great callings on their life with this, this, um, this deeper perspective on who Jesus was before it was made public. Third, and final in this, in this portion of verses two and three, Jesus was more than a man, the God of heaven and earth who condescended to earth in human flesh on our behalf. And he knew that they needed to know this sooner than later. Verse four, Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. So if this, if this isn't already bizarre, because we will read in a few verses that uh, Peter and I'm sure the other disciples that were there were extremely afraid. So if this doesn't get weirder, Jesus is there in a state they've never seen him, but these two other guys that have been long and since gone, they just pop into existence and they're communicating with Jesus. They're not communicating with them, they're communicating with Jesus. And so, wow, you know, this is that type of revelation without some sort of explanation. How in the world do we know what's going on here? Um, Peter didn't know. Well, we'll see his response. I mean, he did the best he could, but he was way off. <laughs> um, so uh, let's read verse four and five. A- again, Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Yeah, I'll hold off on verse five right now. So in the general um, concept of this is that uh, Moses and Elijah represented far more than just themselves. I think this is definitely a point to consider that, you know, Moses represented the giving of the law and Elijah represented the, in a sense, the prophetic group of men in the Old Testament. And actually some of them are women as well, but most of them were men. Um, but there is more. I, I can't believe how much there is. And we'll just go through some of the, the key points in knowing like why these two guys, there are so many people that God could have chosen to, in a sense, come back and speak with Jesus. But why Moses and Elijah? Well, maybe we'll have a little better perspective after this part of the conversation. So both Moses on Mount Sinai and Elijah, Mount Horeb, had experiences on high mountains. Because where, where, where were these guys taken? They were taken to a very high mountain to have this experience. This wasn't on ground level. Um, both Moses and Elijah underwent transformations Moses' face, remember, it reflected the glory of God as he came down from the mountain, as Dr. Glazner talked about in service this morning. Um, and Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. They both had miraculous transformations that were very uncommon. Another thing, some say these were the two witnesses that are mentioned. It's not explicit, but again, this is a maybe a little bit of speculation that they were the witnesses that are mentioned in revelation 11 that actually come back and have witness um, for Christ and, and uh, the, the um, in, in his ministry in the, in, in some form of the tribulation. Malachi four, five, and six is one of the passages that anchors us to Elijah and his connection with John the Baptist. Um, it says, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise I will come and strike the land with a curse. So the best way I was able to understand this is this is not predicting some far in times like permanent eschatological event. It's in a sense predicting the ministry of 
John the Baptist carrying into Christ. It's, it's basically restoring relationships the way God designed them through repentance and spiritual renewal, which is exactly what John the Baptist's ministry was in preparation for Christ who would ultimately restore mankind to God and thus heal human relationships. So I believe that's why this language is used. It's kind of complex, but um, you know, there was unanimity on this passages in terms of connecting Elijah um, to this text. And it's something we, we've probably read before, but, but it is very interesting that um, the concept here is these extremely important family relationships will be restored through what Elijah and the one like Elijah to come uh, would, would, would do in their ministry. Um, so further, Elijah turned the hearts of the people from Baal to the worship of the living God. How much more of a, in a sense, a precursor to the ministry of Christ is that turning people's hearts from worshiping idols, worshiping themselves to worshiping the living God through his ministry, through his teaching. Um, So again, as we've just briefly seen, I'll give one more with Moses. There is so much connection to these men. Moses, do you remember in Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19, He's actually the prototype of Christ. Christ is the antitype, the fulfillment of this passage where God says to Moses, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to his, listen to my words that he speaks in my name. That's incredible. And and there, there will be a passage we'll get to in a moment um, I'll just allude to it now. It's Deuteronomy 18, 15. So it's right in this section. Do you remember where the Lord says, uh, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. So he was the prophet like Moses in his likeness, in the likeness of his ministry, but would be far greater. And the language that is used is you must listen to him. What does God say through the Holy Spirit to Jesus, or what does the Father directly say to Jesus, whether it's public or not, whether Jesus was the only one that heard it, I'm not sure, but what does he say to Jesus in his, in his uh, inauguration into his ministry through baptism? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And I, I believe one of the other, um, it, it might not be that, that specific section, but there are a few other times in the New Testament that use the language, listen to him. This is my son, take what he says very seriously. So, it is so interesting that that's not new language. This is something that we see back through Moses. So these guys being Jews, this is what's so unique about this passage, why a common Westerner would just brush through it because we wouldn't necessarily make these connections. But Moses and Elijah and their, them being forerunners of Christ is all over the Old Testament. And, and these are some of the primary connecting points that you know scholars of these passages help us make to understand more um, why these guys might have been chosen for this specific role, apart from just the general consensus that they um, represented the law and the prophets as a witness to the coming of Christ, as a precursor to Christ, who would ultimately fulfill those prophecies and fulfill all the things that the nation of Israel did not perfectly complete, and the law who the nation of Israel did not complete. Jesus would, um, before any jot or tittle of the law was in a sense superseded or surpassed. Christ 
would actually fulfill all of those things. And so this is all extremely significant. So these Old Testament figures were like support roles in a movie, ultimately making much of the primary actor that is Christ. I I think the the, the one movie that kept coming to mind was um, Lord of the Rings, Samwise, his support role to um, The Hobbit. I mean, no, not The Hobbit. Yeah, Frodo. Sorry, we, we just watched these movies in a very close sequence. And so it's, uh, there's some cool overlap in them. But Frodo does not realize some of the times how much that guy Sam has his back. But the focus is not on Sam. It's on Frodo and his mission. And the, the, there are other gentlemen in that, in, that have support roles. But he just really stood out to me. And the focus is, is giving them enough, in a sense, time in front of the camera to show their significance but not making them the primary actor. And that is what these men and other prophets were to do, were to prepare the way for Christ and ultimately make light of him. And why we know this is what happens to Elijah and Moses before Jesus and the inner circle come down from the mountain. Poof, they just disappear because that's not, the focus is not on them. It's on Christ. They, they were the ones that were in a sense preparing the strength and weight of the ministry of Christ. And so Jesus wanted his inner circle to have no doubt that his ministry was anchored in the Old Testament prophecy and imagery. They were the forerunners. He was the fulfillment. Elijah and Moses were the forerunners and Jesus was the fulfillment. So why was the transfiguration necessary? I believe because Jesus was so intimately engaged in the human lives of the disciples up to this point that it might've been easy to forget who he actually was. Of course, they knew he was not a normal rabbi, but to really know who he actually was. The son of God who was to be feared before he was to be befriended. Catch this guys. He was the son of God who was to be feared before he was to be befriended. The fear of God rightly aligns a person's heart and mind towards him. Does the book of Proverbs say anything different? The fear of the Lord is always the starting point to being restored to God and knowing him more and having him reveal his wisdom to us and growing us in him. It's always the starting point. <clears throat> so Peter's, we're gonna go into verses five and six, Peter's suggestion of building tabernacles. This is fun. (laughs) Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Isn't it interesting that Peter still called him Rabbi even after that he was transfigured into a divine heavenly being, the, the, the fullness of who he actually was? Isn't it interesting he still called him Rabbi? I, I find that kind of striking and some other um, studiers of this passage thought, thought so as well. It's almost like he was so nervous. He just said, what well, came to mind? I mean, how many of you guys, when you get nervous, do you, do you get quiet? You don't have to shake your hand if you're embarrassed. This is definitely not something to be embarrassed about. <laughs> There's a reason why I'm not raising my hand. I, I'm not in that camp, unfortunately. I, I'm learning to be, but I'm not in that camp. How many of you start to stutter or talk a little bit more when you get nervous or scared. 
I mean, I don't know if there's much middle ground, but whether you're participating or not, typically we're in <laughs> one or the other camp. And usually it's interesting. The people that are in one camp feel ashamed that they're in that camp. And it's probably likewise with the other. Man, why am I that way? But then the other person goes, man, why can't I, you know, why do I just shut down when something crazy happens? Why can't I be more interactive? And so I think we're all kind of envying other people that are different than us than at some point. And that's just the battle we have to experience and deal with on this side of heaven. But the reality is, is Peter, um, I think the writer of The Chosen did a really good job portraying Peter. Peter was the first one to speak up. He was not afraid to say what was on his mind. And, and sometimes it was helpful and a lot of times it wasn't helpful, but he, he said it. And sometimes we need someone to say something. If the whole world was silent when something needed to be said, that would be rough. And if everyone talked and blabbed when there was a time to be silent, that would be difficult as well. So, you know, we need the Peters of this world. And so he made this suggestion and I don't know if he fully understood what he was exactly doing other than that there, there seems to be some connection between, um, I believe it's the Feast of Tabernacles and this, this scene. And it, it was really hard for me to understand because I, I haven't really done a deep study on the significance of that, um, that annual celebration that uh, God gave to Israel. But for some reason, Peter was thinking this was like an end point. This was something where they needed to stay there and camp out. Like, man, Jesus is doing this because we're just going to hang here. All that earthly stuff, we're beyond that. We're, we're here. Let's just make a permanent dwelling. And uh, boy, was he wrong, but that's what he wanted. And that was his gut response when he was living in fear and, and uh, didn't know how to react. So um, verse six, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. So again, just like, you know, we see these other guys were terrified, but he typically is the spokesperson for the crowd, right? He's the guy that speaks up. <laughs> Whether they want him to say that or not, no, dude, that's not what I want to say. You totally misrepresented me right there. I mean, whatever it is, he's the one that has no fear to say something. So he speaks out of fear and, you know, Christ always has grace on him. Occasionally he gives him a strong rebuke, but typically he, he's very merciful in his response. So in this section, why was there no need for tabernacles? I think it's good for us to understand maybe why Jesus said that's not necessary, that he just kind of moved on from that recommendation. Um, one commentator, I thought this was better than I could have put it in words. He said, before Peter's very eyes, God's dwelling with humanity is present. For Jesus is the new tabernacle of God dwelling with humanity. So he already had that tabernacle, which was his flesh. And the God of the universe was wrapped and clothed in that flesh. Um, what, what's the language that's used in the gospel of John? He tabernacled, he dwelt among us, right? So th this is really cool that John draws that out too in, in his realization of who Christ is and you know, what he documented in the scriptures. So um, Peter, don't get comfortable yet, buddy. This is, uh, <laughs> wait, there's a lot more coming. This is not the, uh, this is not the glory yet. <laughs> this was not a destination, but a preview. Suffering would come in Jesus's and their lives before they would be fully, before Jesus and later the disciples and us would be glorified in eternity. And this is, this is why, and I'll, I'll 
relate if you haven't made the connection yet why I gave that analogy with the movie of, of um, someone getting a revelation or a dream or an epiphany and how that carries them through difficult times. If you watch the field of dreams, it, didn't, it wasn't smooth. It didn't work out right away. There was lots of things that would cause the average person to just give up. But he was so certain. I mean, he had these actual experiences. Again, it's a movie, but to draw a light of the story, um, for, for our analogy, uh, he was convinced that this would happen and he pushed through it. And this is what I believe Christ is doing in the inner circle's life, Peter, James, and John, to prepare them for what lies ahead. When the things got bad, they needed something to anchor themselves to that would keep them from giving up. So Peter, don't get comfortable yet, buddy. To us, the church, don't get comfortable yet. (laughs) The kingdom was near, but not fully established in Christ's first coming. As James, or um, Dr. Brooks, one of the commentators I read so eloquently said, the kingdom was near, but not fully established in Christ's first coming. So do do you know the language, you know, if we can remember that, is used in the gospels regarding the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is near. It's really interesting that um, there is this concept of the kingdom of heaven being brought to earth when Christ is in his ministry, but there is this fullness of the kingdom that will never be removed in this future kingdom during and after Christ's second coming. That will be a permanent state that believing faithful humanity will dwell with uh, Christ in but there is this experience of the kingdom of God because of Christ's proximity to them in his ministry. And that is one thing that honestly, the disciples didn't fully understand. And quite frankly, sometimes we don't is that this is not the fullness of the kingdom. It's near, it's nearer than it was before. John the Baptist, when he came on the scene because of the prophecy in the Old Testament, man, that guy was proof that it's getting really near. And then Christ comes on the scene. It's even nearer but the fullness of the kingdom is going to come in his second coming and it's not going to, it's not going to go away. It'll be, it'll be everlasting. So verse seven, a cloud appeared overshadowing them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Do you see in, in this transfiguration account, how quickly these events change from one verse to another. It's like, boom, these guys are gone and something else is going on. This is, there's a lot packed into these verses. This is why it can be so confusing sometimes. Um, essentially, the, the best I can understand it is this is a representation of the Old Testament's use of what the rabbis called the Shekinah glory of God. Whenever this cloud descended, it typically meant that God's presence was in the midst of the people. Um, that was, there was a huge cloud that covered Mount Sinai I believe when Moses was up in it um, and you know, he came down with his face shining. But when, when, when God's people are in his actual presence, uh, it's like the, the third day song. I think it's called show me your glory. Have you heard that song before? It's a, it's a song that was written. I wish I had the lyrics up here. It was written off of Moses's experience on the mountain. It says, when I climbed down that mountain, in a sense, I won't settle for second best. I will not go back to ordinary things. I will follow you forever for all of my days. I won't rest till I see you again. It, it was meant to be an experience that forever changed their life where they would never look at their calling, their life, who God was in the same light. And I think that um, passage brings what we're talking about here um, 
or that, that Psalm, that lyric is so pointed to um, what, what I believe Christ was trying to impart to um, the inner circle in, in this experience. So Peter, don't get comfortable yet. Disciples, don't get comfortable yet. This is just the beginning of, of the difficult journey ahead. So the cloud is the impregnating presence of God, symbolizing that in Jesus, even more than in the tabernacle of old, God dwells bodily with humanity. Dr. Edwards, and he, he you know, we connected this to John 1.14. Um, and Deuteronomy 18.15 uh, we already went over that. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. What's the, so to speak, biological lineage of Christ? Where, like what people group did he descend from? The, the brothers, Moses was speaking to Israel, the brothers he was talking about, right? He was coming from the people group of Israel. And so in every way, Jesus was that prophet and God said, you must listen to him. What is the language here in verse seven? This is my beloved son. This is the father speaking. Listen to him. I mean, if they didn't make the connection that this was the prophet that Moses was talking about, <laughs> I don't know if it was going to get much clearer. This was the point where Jesus is like, you really need to know who I am because this next year and a half, and beyond in your life is going to get really, really challenging. So verse eight, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. You see the next verse changes again. The cloud's gone. The other witnesses are gone. Only Jesus remains. Edwards, uh, one commentator, Edwards said again, rather than escaping with his heavenly visitants to glory, Jesus remains to complete his journey to Jerusalem. This was not the end. This was the halfway point in Christ's ministry. He still had things to accomplish. Elijah and Moses, again, were just support roles to help the disciples understand who Christ was and the significance of his ministry. So the, we'll read through verses nine through 13 and we'll just unpack these real quick. As they were coming down the mountain, he, Jesus, ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And I mentioned why I, I think that secrecy was so important earlier. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Even though Jesus had just mentioned it in his passion prediction just before this. So they were still confused. Like, wow, this guy isn't just going to be this permanent earthly ruler. He's actually going to die. I don't understand that. That's not part of what I thought the Messiah was supposed to come to do. Um, so again, there seemed to be a partial veil on Jesus's full identity and significance until after the resurrection. This was God's plan, but he gave his inner circle more of a glimpse than anyone else during his earthly ministry. So verse 12, actually verse 11 real quick. Why then? Why they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So man, they're just getting right into these, these questions. They're really interested about Elijah and, and what, what, his, what his coming is going to look like. Elijah does come first and restore all things, Jesus replied. Why then is it written that the son of man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. 
and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. Do you see how, no, no matter what verse you read in this account, Mark 9, verses 2 through 13, um, it's hard. It, it, it's not surface level clear passages. It needs some digging, some explanation. These are, these are very challenging passages. And again, I think they would have made a lot more sense to the, these Jewish men that grew up around um, Pharisaical wisdom and Judaism their whole life. They would understand this stuff much more regularly, but we, and even then they still needed explanation, but we definitely need that help, that study, um, that insight. So again, Dr. Glazner actually talked about it this morning. The f- I always thought that since Elijah had never died, he's one of the only guys in the Old Testament or in the Bible that actually, that we know of from historical recording, he actually hasn't experienced physical death. Um, and then there's Enoch. But Elijah is kind of this mysterious figure. It, um, what is it? Um, that passage in the Old Testament we were just talking about earlier. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. I believe Jesus is bringing light to this. That he is basically saying that Elijah has come, but it's not actually Elijah in the flesh at this point. He might come back in Revelation, who knows? But it's not Elijah in the flesh, but Elijah, John the Baptist is the type of Elijah. He comes to fulfill this certain Elijah-like ministry, which is why John the Baptist is so consistently talked about as being that one, that, that Elijah. It's, it's not a simile. It's like a metaphor. I mean, they say, you know, this is Elijah. He's come. It's very interesting. I always thought that was literal. Like, is he really John the Baptist? Like when I was a young Christian, no, he's got to be Elijah because that's what, you know, it says. Um, it's, I, I just didn't under, understand the concept of um, imagery and metaphor and um, just all these different things, this language the Bible uses to bring about its truth. So um, he was the forerunner of Christ, the immediate forerunner. John the Baptist was the closest prophet to Jesus in proximity. He was right before preparing the way and making straight paths, preparing the hearts of the people to receive him. So verse 12, restore all things. I agree with one commentator that Jesus is not speaking of final restoration in the eschaton, but a preparatory work of repentance and renewal as in the Malachi passage, because we know that the, this Elijah-like figure, this John the Baptist, he did not restore all things in an eschatological sense. So we need to understand these passages looking back and how they rolled out and go, you know, what was my understanding of this? It might've been wrong. I need to reassess it possibly. But, um, you know, it it is really interesting when Jesus says um, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But he also says that, no, you're not still waiting for Elijah. He has come. And they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written. So, the connection between John the Baptist and Elijah is from 1 Kings 19, verses 2 and 10. John the Baptist was beheaded to satisfy Herodias' bloodthirsty hatred, just as Elijah was hated by Queen Jezebel. So the one who came in the power and spirit of Elijah was hated by Queen Herodias. These guys have such overlap in their experience. And ultimately, it was because of these wicked queens these guys 
had trial and tribulation. And ultimately, actually, it was John who on this side of heaven, his life was ended. Um, Elijah was taken up to heaven, but he had radical turmoil. I mean, he wanted to end his life, right? Because of this lady. He was so depressed thinking, this lady is so powerful. She's so authoritative. Um, I'm done. She's going to find me and she's going to get me. So I, I believe Elijah was just out in the middle of the wilderness with the Lord saying, I don't want to live anymore. He was super depressed. And so um, th- these guys definitely can relate to being alone, have, having, having little support in their life other than their relationship with God. So a few applications in this that I, that I thought of. The first one, it's very small, but a theological application is a preview of the resurrection of Christ and the full establishment of the kingdom of God at Jesus's return was, I believe, a primary theological reason why the transfiguration was added um, or was part of the, um, the narrative in the gospels. But for our lives to kind of hit home there, I believe there are three primary discipleship applications to this passage. I think some of them have already been alluded to, but I'll just uh, read, read them off. The first one is the righteous man in his process of discipleship will face suffering. Elijah did with Jezebel, like Elijah did with Jezebel, John the Baptist with the Roman authorities. And so would Jesus and his followers. We will face suffering and we might have already faced that just like they did. We do not go through the process of discipleship on our own. Jesus is with us throughout the joy and trials of it. And you know what? If it's going to get really harsh, it might not be like a transfiguration experience, but I believe he gives us what we need to prepare for something that we don't even know lies ahead. Second, Jesus wants to transform, to transform our perspectives and presuppositions about him and align them with the truth. Just as Peter, James, and John did not have the full and right perspective on who Jesus was and who he is. Peter had no idea that he did not understand Christ for who he truly was until the transfiguration. And even then he still did not fully get it. And honestly, this was kind of my thought as I was writing some final notes today. Will any one of us fully know Christ for who he is? We will have an eternity to do so. And we must press on in the now. That's something that should humble us. It's easy to, you know, criticize Peter and, and think about the limited knowledge they have. But are we ever, even in eternity, you can have full knowledge of who Christ is in all his glory. I think it's an, I think it's an everlasting progression and experience and growth and knowledge, <clears throat> which, you know, it seems to be the case because there's not a time limit of our eternal dwelling with Christ. It's not going to be like our experience here on this earth where we have a short window of time. Um, clearly we will not get bored by the grace of God of knowing him and, and spending time with him and learning more about him. So third and final application As Jesus did with Peter, James, and John, Jesus prepares us beforehand for the trials and difficulties we will face as we walk with him in the midst of this fallen world. There is grace when we fail. What did Peter do later on, maybe a year after this experience, 
closer to Christ's crucifixion. He denied Jesus three times, right? Even with being in the inner circle and having these deeper experiences with Christ, more fully understanding who he was, this again was before his death and resurrection. But this did not disqualify him from his calling. I don't know about you, but that really encourages me. Um, Again, these guys were faced with massive discouragement before the transfiguration. And I hope we take this away knowing that um, God is the same God as he was to these disciples. And he truly wants to use us. And some things that we might feel like are disqualifiers by God's grace, they will not. And we will still be able to take hold of that for which he is specifically uniquely gifted and called each one of us to do. So may, may that encourage us today. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to, um, if but scratch the surface on um, a very uh, beautiful yet mysterious yet historical passage that you have given us to ponder and think on. And we pray, Lord, that um, we would be encouraged by the things that we do know about it. And we would live this life in expectation, not only of trials, but of your beautiful mercy and grace and ultimate permanent deliverance into eternity. Um, We pray, Father, that... uh, um, We would take every section of scripture, even the hard ones, to heart and take them seriously and know that as we press into you and seek you as a precious jewel, uh, that we would find the richness in your word that you don't give to the surface level reader. You don't give to those who are just wanting to pull things from your word like a kid in a candy store, but you give richly to those who mine the depths of your word. And may we be found as being those who have the character as such. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.